0: I would like you to picture that you are channel surfing. If anybody does that these days, any of you still channel surf? In the era of Netflix, few of the older folks here who refuse to get up with the times. So imagine that you're channel surfing, and you come across a religious channel, and there's some televangelist, and, and the first thing you notice is that he's got this graphic up He's got a bunch of sins kind of listed by category, and then alongside each of them is a price tag. And his basic idea is, you send in your check for the price of that sin, and I'll make sure you get forgiven. It's quite a gimmick. Now, of course, who would fall for that, right? We're, we all, we are all, there's a lot of Christian quacks on TV. Let's just be clear about that. But who would really in their right mind fall for that these days? But believe it or not, absent of the multimedia technology, that was exactly what was going on in the 16th century in Europe. The church, in order to build their big facility in the Vatican was selling forgiveness for sins at a price. You can actually do a, a web search and find some of the prices for what were called indulgences. Not only for yourself, but for your relatives who had died and were now in this thing called purgatory it's not in the Bible, but it kind of evolved uh, in the church and its teaching. You could buy your family out of purgatory. It was a pay-as-you-sin <laughs> plan for forgiveness. And we might say to ourselves, how could the church, the whole church in Europe, fall so far off the mark? It didn't just happen overnight. One of the strong reasons for it was because the book that we're studying in this series, Eat This Book, the society and both in, unintentionally and intentionally, had removed the access of scripture from the people. Most people couldn't read. The church had a version of the Bible that was not in its original language but was in Latin instead, and so the the, the mass was in Latin, and the 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 priesthood basically said to folk, "Don't worry about." reading this we'll tell you what's in it and with that power came predictably abuse lack of accountability it was a it was a long path away from the truth of the bible that led to that con and let me be clear it was a con in the name of christ there were finally those because the scripture had begun to be available to people who began to call the church out. One group of Christians put out a publication against the church called Basic Principles Based on the Truth of God's Word, just a call back to the basic historic teachings of the church. And one of the 20 tenets that they put out was this: We believe that salvation is by grace alone through faith in Christ. Now, most of us are familiar with Martin Luther's 95 tenets that he put during that same period on the door of his church, but this group of Christians was called in by the church as part of the Great Inquisition to root out what the church called heresy. And believe it or not, these people that were calling the church back to basic things that are clear in Scripture were called heretics and threatened with torture and death unless they recanted. And as a result of their commitment to this book, Hundreds were put to death by the church of Jesus Christ who were doing nothing except calling it back to its roots. And that ushered in, those, those acts ushered in what we refer to as the Reformation, a return to the core teachings of Scripture. And the Reformation had five basic tenets, but it began with the tenet sola scriptura, Which means scripture alone is our basis for authority and faith. No man can tell us what we believe. Scripture alone, sola scriptura. And then when you follow out what that says, the second tenet was sola fide. Salvation is by faith alone. And sola gratia, by grace alone. And solus Christus, through Christ alone. And then finally, soli deo gloria, all of this for God's glory alone, no man and no institution, no earthly institution. And that great return to these core truths of God's word led to the redemption of millions of people. And you and I are benefits of those who risked literally life and limb to do nothing else except return to this book and its truth. And so this is why we're spending time doing a series like this. Over at the other campus last week, uh, one of our visitors came and obviously part of a Christian church for a long time visiting us, came and basically queried, why are you spending time on a Sunday morning doing something so basic as talking about the Bible? Well, you know what they meant. Obviously, we preach the Bible, but it feels like we're like back at the starting point. Exactly. We have to go back to these roots because the church is always being threatened from inside and outside to drift off of it. And and today we are experiencing that as well. The original lie of the great deceiver in the book of Genesis is still the lie that we all fall for, whether it's people who are standing in pulpits or in politics or in classrooms, and that is to ask the question, did God really say? And and we need to know how to answer that. And so we're spending time going back to these basics. The first weeks we spent time... reviewing for some and teaching for some of you the first time the nature of this book how we came up with it what we mean when scripture says it's inspired written by God God breathed, but also written by men how we can trust it and and the change it's meant to bring about in our lives and now as we turn the corner to the final three weeks we're gonna look at how to take this book and actually engage with it how do you engage scripture in a way that it actually has that transformative not just informative impact that it's intended to have the key verse we're going to look at today is from second timothy let's say it together good and strong do your best to present yourself to god as one approved a workman who does not need to be ashamed who correctly handles the word of truth. The key words I want you to focus on for now are those two words at the bottom line, correctly handling. Paul is being clear here to Timothy, his young pastoral protege, that there's a way to properly handle Scripture, which then follows that there's a way to incorrectly handle Scripture. It's possible that some of you, when you heard Pastor Lou and Pastor Len uh, talk about their love affair with Scripture when they first came to faith and how they just couldn't get enough of it, uh, which, which is a, a wonderful thing when you have that experience. And some of you said, I want that, and being so inspired, you jumped right in and started reading. And maybe you've had that experience. Maybe, maybe others of you have been caught up immediately and have not had that experience at all. In fact, the very opposite you're troubled. You jumped in and you're like maybe in the book of Genesis and it's messy and it's ugly and you don't know what to do with that. And you're confused with how God interacts with it. I remember a, a young Christian when I, in my very first church when I was a young youth pastor came to Christ and I kind of gave him a Bible and said, one of the things you need to do as a new Christian is to start reading the Bible. I, I think I said he should start with the gospel of John, but I may have forgotten that. And so when I saw him a few weeks later, he, he had lost his joy real fast. And I said, well, are, are you reading the Bible? He said, yes. <laughs> well, what are you reading? <laughs> Revelation! <laughs> if you're just starting the Bible, don't read the end first. First of all, it ruins the plot. <laughs> there, you know, for now, you know, here, here's, here's basically a two-word uh, sermon on the book of Revelation. We win. Let's just start there, and let's go back and come at Scripture. So the point I want you to see as you look at this is it's not just that you read Scripture that matters. It's how you engage Scripture that matters. Paul says that very clearly. There's a way to correctly handle it. That's what we're going to look at for the next couple of weeks. I um, brainstormed a few ways that we may think we're handling the word properly but at least falls short and sometimes it's incorrect there's the magic word approach to it i think a lot of us use the magic word approach it's the idea that on any page at any given moment we can open it and there's something very specific for us like right now i'm saying i should go buy a thousand donkeys you know what I'm saying, it's like, it's, got, it's like this magic thing that the words kind of become our words in spite of whatever was meant to be said. And there's lots of funny stories about people who've done that, but the one I'm thinking of is the Bible college student who was so committed to the Bible, he decided, I'm not going to do anything unless I find chapter and verse. He'd been dating a girl for months and had yet to kiss her. He couldn't find any passage in Scripture that would give him permission for that, He'd come, you know, greet one another with a brotherly kiss, but that just didn't seem to fit the moment. So after another date, you know, he's walking her back uh, to her dorm, and um, as he's about to shake her hand, she lunges at him, gives him about a 15-second kiss. He comes out of it. He's all short-winded, and he says, Scripture verse, Scripture verse. And she says, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, I think more often than not, that approach is actually dangerous, not funny. How about the encyclopedia approach? That the Bible is a collection of information on various subjects, particularly doctrine and belief, and we tend to only approach it based on our concordance. We look up a subject, and then we go and we chase down all the verses, as though it's really just an encyclopedia of spiritual knowledge. The Bible has a lot to say about those things, but you're missing out on what the Bible's meant to be if that's all you do. It's without heart. It's really without... It's informational, not transformational. How about the DIY toolbox approach? I came up with that name. (coughs) The Bible's a manual for your personal success in life. You know, what does the Bible say about money and relationships and business and weight loss and and habits and... (coughs) all those different things. It's not that the Bible doesn't have things to say about those things, but man, you're limiting the power of God's Word to your plan. Think about that. The Bible's meant to create your agenda, not further your own agenda. How about the mystery approach? Oh, man. That the Bible has secret messages that only a Special few have discovered. There's codes in here. There's number systems. There's all sorts of things. It's not what's on the lines. It's what's in between the lines. And we few have it. Or the Bible is a science book. We we approach this ancient text written thousands of years through men who had a certain understanding of the world and actually spoke As they understood and described what they saw, often it is not scientific, it's just visually observed, and yet we put it up against physics texts as though it was written with that in mind. The Bible wasn't written as a science or a physics text, and the church has made a lot of mistakes by taking the descriptions in Scripture, and because of that, villainizing godly scientists who have discovered some incredible truth in God's creation. A good example was Galileo, who uh, came up with, at least in Europe, he was the one who proposed and argued that the, the earth rotated around the sun rather than God's creation rotating around the earth. Geocentric, his view was heliocentric. And he wrote about it. And the church, because of the language in Scripture about creation, not even Genesis 1, but just the whole description of the firmament and the earth and all these different things which echoed archaic views of the world in the absence of modern science and telescopes and the like, the church said, that's heresy. And they threatened to kill him and torture him if he didn't recant. Sadly, you may not know this, Galileo recanted. He said, "How I was just teasing. I was showing my debate skills by arguing the other side. And he recanted. And his book was banned. But who here believes that the world, the universe, rotates around the earth? Anybody here? If you did, so that, what that means is all of us would be heretics and put to death by the church in Galileo's day. Think about that. That's not correctly handling the Word of God. Not everything is written with the lens of predicting where science would go. That wasn't the intent. Even Genesis 1, which we'll talk about in a moment, is not historic narrative. Did you know that? The historic narrative of Scripture begins midway through chapter 2. And so to correctly handle Genesis 1, we need to look at it in its literary form, and then come to terms with it. And of course, there's lots of room for discussion about that, but that's what it means to correctly handle Scripture. So with all that in mind, how do we engage Scripture so that we're hearing it as God's Word and it's transforming our lives? So let's go to this verse. In fact, we're going to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and read a large portion of that chapter. It's page 842 in the Bible. Uh, in the pew rack, I'd like you to turn there. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of show you as we deal with this passage how we ought to engage Scripture. Because we don't just use a verse and just jump into it. We need to, in order to fully understand a verse, we need to look at the context and not just the broader writing, but we need to understand the backstory, what's happening here. Now, Timothy is Paul's protege. Timothy is a young pastor in Ephesus, and in the first and second letters to Timothy, Paul has a lot to say about the Bible. In fact, we've been in those passages up until this point, and we're continuing in it today. But not just because Timothy is a pastor who's who's charged with teaching the Word. In this chapter, he's addressing a real crisis that's happening in the church because False teachers have come up from within the church and are putting out ideas and manipulating and twisting Scripture and introducing ideas that aren't biblical, and they're threatening the church and leading the church astray. So this challenge has been true since the foundation of the church. There have always been those that threaten, and the Word of God is, is our rudder through the, the confusion of false teaching. And what you're going to hear as we read is that Paul uses really strong language about false teaching. So we're going to begin reading at verse 14 and then read down through uh, verse 26. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. The word words there means teaching, scripture. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless debate because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with his inscription, quote, the Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. But those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments of special purpose, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Now, we're going to keep reading, and what I want you to see here is an exhortation There's more that he's going to say about false teachers, but I want you to see an exaltation that Paul gives Timothy about how a pastor should conduct themselves in terms of the scripture. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach and not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil, who has taken them captive to do his will. Now before we take this verse and exegete, kind of look at the different wording there, let me draw two ideas from this broader passage. One is the way Paul characterizes the ruinous, and that's one of the words, the ruinous nature of false teaching. So the first thing we see is that false teaching is ruinous. These quarreling and arguments about Scripture uh, actually ruin the body of Christ. That's verse 14. Another thing we see is that false teaching actually makes people less godly. That's verse 16. Because it moves people away from choices morally, culturally, and, and spiritually uh, from God's plan. And instead of becoming more like God, they, they actually become less godly. He goes on in verse 17 and says that false teaching is popular teaching. Spreads like gangrene. So it's an infection, but it spreads. Why does it spread? Because it's popular. Elsewhere, Paul talks about false teachers who will tickle the ears of their listeners. Why? Because we all want to hear something that involves less sacrifice, you know, less countercultural, more convenient, more sensible to our sensibilities. False teaching is attractive. He actually names names. (laughs) Imagine being Hymenaeus and Philetus and forever having your names in Scripture as the example of false teachers. Wow! I think there's a place for Christian leaders to name names of those who are leading people astray whose teaching is ruinous let let me let me do that the whole plethora of pastors on television that are preaching the prosperity gospel are false teachers they are they're false teachers they're tickling the ears appealing to your your desire for prosperity and health that's false teaching rob bell has become a false teacher Started off in the church, and then he drifted away from Scripture to something that he personally found less offensive. And the sad thing is that he's pulling others away as well. Another thing we see about false teachers is that they actually produce deconversions. Because of them, they have destroyed the faith of some. Deconversions are a big deal right now, right? How many are aware of some like high-profile Christian leaders that have actually very publicly walked away from Christianity? Anybody aware of that? I'm going to tell you that that is because at some point in their understanding, they walked away from the, the primary ideas of Scripture and then became disenfranchised by those false ideas and the sad thing is they're doing it arrogantly and boldly, and they're destroying the faith of others who have followed them. You see, now, I don't do a lot of sermons like this where I sound like such a you know, party pooper. Because ultimately, I need you and want you to like me. It's one of my growth areas. Sorry about that. But when Scripture calls us, we, we need to take this seriously. I think that's the point I want you to understand. The second thing I want you to see is how we are to engage with with false teaching. If you have ever sat in a church where the preacher rails in anger and condemns people to hell and angrily spits out judgment against false preachers, that person may believe the truth, but they are a false teacher In terms of how we are to approach them. Because we are to always be full of grace. We need to know the word. We need to be able to teach. But we need to be kind and gentle. And we should never give up on anyone. Even the false teacher with the hope that they will come back to their senses. Because ultimately the final thing we see about false teaching. Is that it's really a. They've fallen victim and are a tool of Satan. He says in verse 26. So this is something we take seriously, right? And it's why being aware that, you know, the drift is always there, the tendency for people to say things that make sense and pull us off. But it also makes us then ask the question, well, how do I know then that I'm staying true to the Bible? How do I do that? And so that's what we're going to touch on for the, the next couple of weeks now. And so let's first of all look at this passage and I want to talk about three requirements that uh, it talks about in terms of correctly handling Scripture, the first requirement. It takes dedication. He says, "Do your best." The Greek work there, the Greek word there is to be zealous." We're, we're often far too casual and therefore just throw stuff out that comes to mind, really not thinking if, if we're honoring Scripture. We need, we need to be as zealous for this as you are about your favorite football team or your favorite hobby or your work. We need to recognize it. It's important that I do this right. I'm passionate about it. Second thing that he says, is the, th- the second requirement is relationship do your best to present yourself to God as one approved we need to recognize as Pastor Lou and and Len shared with us that the Bible is ultimately God's love letter to us we deepen our relationship with him it's not just about loving scripture but through it learning to love its author more in a way that he intended when Vitalina and I were dating we fell hard pretty fast. You know, it was like the first date, I knew I was gonna marry this girl. And, um, but about a month into it, I started getting like every day a, a card or a note in, about expressing undying love. I mean, they were amazing. And I thought to myself, how does she have time for this? She's a full-time college student, yet every day I was getting these amazing letters. Well, it turned out that Vit had begun long before we were dating. Buying these cards and these notes while she was praying for the man that she would someday marry. Yeah. <laughs> it was me. <laughs> <laughs> so I benefited from all these incredible notes. i got to tell you, I cherish every one of them. Do you think I abused or made fun of them or, or twisted them? No, I, I, I love them. That's how we need to see Scripture. Yeah, some of the passages feel a whole lot less than loving. But we need to take it in as a whole and say, in this, God is communicating His love. And He wants me to be in relationship with Him. And I want Him to say, yeah, I approve this message. Right? We've all been misquoted, yes? And that's been hurtful because our words have been twisted and people have lost the meaning. Some people don't mean to do it, some people do it, and they mean to do it. But we all do that with this book. And if we love God, then we don't wanna do that. We want him to approve of how we deal with it. And then third, third requirement is skill. We can learn and develop the ability to actually know that we're going into God's word well. Three different words in this passage really fo- focus on this. This is really the big idea that Paul is putting out. The word workman in the Greek is a skilled craftsman. My wife will often boast that I'm a finished carpenter. She has no idea. I'm not a finished carpenter. I'm a rough carpenter. I just know how to use store-bought molding and a few gallons of spackle. <laughs> and a whole lot of paint to make things look good. Finish finished carpenter, man, they don't need spackle. Sometimes they don't even need nails, right? They create beautiful things. That's what he's talking about. We need to see ourselves as developing that level of expertise, and all of you can develop it. Our goal is that all of you become skilled craftsmen when it comes to scripture. Not ashamed, the work I do I'm proud of. It's excellent work. But that word, correctly handles, is actually an engineering term. It means to make an accurate and straight cut in the Greek language. How many of you were taught by somebody when you were building something to measure twice and cut once? And how many have only measured once and therefore cut twice? We've all done that. Right. That's the idea here. Be careful. You need to, when you make that cut, make sure that you're making it clean and well. Imagine that in terms of Scripture. There's a way to rightly divide the word of truth, which is what an earlier translation says. So so these are the things that we need to take to heart as we come to the Bible. So now uh, for the final few minutes of this sermon and then next week, we're going to talk about how do I make that straight cut? And so I'm gonna introduce in a moment uh, some starting principles for correctly handling, developing a a skill, a craftsmanship when it comes to engaging scripture. But before I do, I wanna recommend two books to you. The first uh, is How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It's an excellent book by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. I would suggest that would be your starting point of the two books really helps you understand the makeup of Scripture and then how to read it in a way that you really get what God's saying. And then the second is more of a workbook style which actually teaches you and then has you do the work of interpreting Scripture entitled Grasping God's Word. Both excellent books. I highly recommend that you have those and use those as a tool to build your skill in engaging Scripture and rightly dividing it. Now, let me just share four basic ideas to get the ball rolling here. Some of it's review of what we've taught already. And the first one is that, the Bible is one book and one story. We start with that as an idea. We're gonna talk about it in different ways in a moment. But essentially, we always look at its individual parts through the primary understanding that this is one book with a single story about God's original intent and creation of man, about our getting horribly off course because of sin and making a mess of things, but God being faithful to his plan and sending his Son in the fullness of time to to be a mediator between God and man, to hang on a cross as a sacrifice for our sin, to be raised from the dead as the Lord of the church, to birth the church, of which you and I are a part, and all of us who profess Jesus as Savior. And now we are extending this life-giving message to the world around us, and someday God will say, time's up, and He's going to make all things new. And we'll be a part of it. One way to get that big story down to help you look at the individual parts of Scripture in that context is to join our growth group that right now is about to have its second meeting, our small group growth group entitled The Big Story of Scripture. Pastor Lou is teaching it. This Tuesday night, the second meeting is had, and and you could still join in on the second week. After this meeting, we're going to close the groups up because, you know, it's progressive teaching. But you could join that. Pastor Lou would be happy to include you. You can find it on the website. Just go to our small group section and express your interest, and Pastor Lou will get back to you. The Bible is one book with one story, but it's also a collection of books and styles of literature. 1,600 years is the span of its authorship, 40-plus authors, three languages, ancient Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. It was written by physicians, theologians, lawyers, and fishermen. It was written in times of peace, in times of war, in times of prosperity, and in times of famine, and if we're gonna get at the heart, if we're gonna make a straight cut, we need to be willing to step back and just do a little bit of work to learn about all that. But of equal importance is the fact that the Bible, God has blessed us by communicating to us in various types of literature. And each form of literature communicates to us in a different way. So you can't come at it all as though it's meant to be God's Word. Just whatever it says is exactly for you. That's not how it comes. Here's, here are the breakdown of the different types of literature in Scripture. There's history and biography. That's much of the Old Testament. The Gospels, the Book of Acts. That is more descriptive, not prescriptive. You don't go into Abraham's life and think that exactly what he did we're supposed to do because frankly, Abraham was really screwed up. You know? What we see in Abraham is more about God's work in him as it is in us. So you don't go into history and think that some of that's prescriptive for our life. There's poetry and songs which communicate in a very different way. How many of you were here when we did our study on the book of Job that we called Unshakable? Any of you here remember that? All right. How many of you were surprised when we first came to it and we explained that the book of Job is not history, it's actually a poem, it's an epic poem? How many remember that? How many of you right now, it's the first time you've heard that? You've never heard the fact that Job is actually a poem, It's, it's not history. Yeah, because we have to come at it that way. If you don't understand that it's poem... Okay, let me, let me explain. There is the life story of Alexander Hamilton, and then there is Hamilton the musical. Right? It's about his life, but yet the dialogue, the songs, the lyrics explore principles that that story allows the author to explore That's what Job is. Did you know that? If you don't know that, you're getting all hang up on the first two chapters, and you're, you're bailing on it, when in, and you'd miss the fact that the three friends that come to counsel for the author represent the three primary views of morality and righteousness of that day and age. It's Job the musical. We should know that, because that plays into what God's trying to say. Wisdom literature and the Proverbs are a certain type of literature that we need to understand are about wisdom, the way life tends to go. They're not verbal, literal promises. For instance, the book of Proverbs says, train up a child in the way they will go, and in the end they will not depart from it. A Proverbs is saying, your best chance of your child Staying in the faith is to raise them in the faith. That's what it's saying. And yet, when we come at it as though it's some kind of kind of prophetic message instead of wisdom literature, then we start judging people's parenting skills based on how their kids are doing. And good people have done their best, but flaw, you know, in a flawed way. Like I'm going to tell you, I parented in a flawed way. I've I've gone back and I've said I'm sorry to my kids and. And I consider it an act of God's grace that my three kids are part of this church. You know, good people that have done their best and then we've judged them because we're abusing that scripture. How many of you have felt that judgment by some church someplace because of how they've looked at your kids? Sure, that is not correctly handling the word of God. And it doesn't take a whole lot of work to get a little more informed and to handle it properly. There's allegory and parables. There's laws and regulations, some of which were only for a season. There's letters and epistles and theological teaching. And there's prophecy and apocryphal literature. How cool is it that God chooses all these different varieties and each of them communicates his eternal truth to us in its unique way? That's why we need to be zealous Just to get that down and make sure we don't come at it all like it's like some set of rules for life. Let it speak as God let it speak. Third, and this is important, every passage of Scripture has one meaning. How many of you have sat in a Bible study where you sat around a circle and you read a passage of Scripture and then the leader asked this question, what does this passage mean to you? And then everybody, without doing a whole lot of work, just kind of says however it hits them. Well, to me it means this, to me it says this, to me it says that. You see, God actually said something when he wrote it. There was something he meant to communicate. And we start rightly dividing it by not asking what does it mean to you, but asking what does it mean? (laughs) What did he actually mean to say to the original listener? Sometimes what he meant to say was for then and also for the future. That's prophetic ministry. But we need to get at that So that then we can ask ourselves, well, what does that mean for us then? And that's a huge difference. And that leads us to the final idea. And that is even though every passage has only one meaning, a passage may have any number of applications for your belief in life. And this is where, as a 63-year-old professional Christian who's been preaching for well over 30 years... I can tell you that God's word is endlessly fascinating because as my life and circumstances change and as situations come and as I grow, even the most familiar passages always have something fresh for my life. But it needs to be rooted in what it says, not what we wanna think it says. Does that make sense? That's how we stay true to scripture and we can do that together. Paul's going to spend a little more time on that next week. Now, if if you'll allow me, I want to take just a few minutes and answer the question about translations. I've had a few people ask me about that. Um, I can't give it full justice, but let me just spend a few minutes as we wrap up talking about translations. And I want to talk first of all about the King James Version, often called the lion of the translations or the authorized version. How many have heard that word? The King James is the authorized version. You think that means it's the real one. But all that means is that it was authorized by King James to have done. And many of us think that the King James version is the one that the Christians that most influenced us, the Reformers and the like, uh, used. But that's not true. There was already an English translation, an excellent one, called the Geneva Bible. It was actually the first study Bible. It had study helps and cross-references. It was a wonderful Bible. And the problem was people were reading it, and they were realizing that, you know, King James is an immoral man, and he's head of the church, and they were leaving the church. And so King James, this is all true. You You can find this out. King James commissioned a group of people to do a translation, the Authorized Church of England Translation, published in 1611, and he commissioned them to specifically translate verses about priests and about the congregation to specifically encourage people to stay in the Church of England. It's an excellent translation, but it's a biased one. And actually, the version of the King James that you have right now is not even the original. It's a paraphrase of it, because you couldn't read the original. It's in 1611 English. And for us Protestants, it may shock the the King James-only people who will tell you, I follow only the 1611 version. Next time that happens, ask them if they actually have it. And then ask them to open the middle, and they'll find out it has the Catholic apocryphal scriptures in it and then ask them to explain that to you. So the King James Version is a good version, but it's at this point an older version, and the the linguistic choices of 400 years ago are often different than those languages today. So there's nothing that it holds over current translations. Now when we translate, we're translating from a very ancient set of languages and trying to bring them into a readable version for us today. And scholars need to walk a very important line when they translate between what we refer to as word for word translation and thought for thought translation. Word for word translation sometimes is accurate with the words that are being said, but misses the symbolism of those words to that culture. Do any of you speak a a primary second or third language? Any of you here? A handful of you. Okay. Have you ever been put in a situation where you're trying to translate something from English for a person who speaks that other language, and the English person uses some sort of a a metaphor or analogy that just doesn't work, a a verbal gimmick, and so you have to actually get the idea of what they're saying and... And translate it so that the thought, the idea comes through. That's even more the case with these ancient languages. And so scholars try to walk the balance of word for word. But also making sure the thoughts come through. And then they need to make it readable. Greek is so colorful. There's no simple English translation that would cover all the nuances. And so what we have is a best version of that. Some People, some translations lean towards the word for word. A good example of that and an excellent translation is the New American Standard Version. Others lean towards the thought for thought. An example of that is the New Living Bible. The ones I trust are the ones that I believe have made an effort to communicate on both levels well. And the two that rise to the top for me are the New International Version, which we use here. It works hard at being both word for word, but also honoring the thoughts and ideas that are being translated. And the other one is the English Standard Version, the ESV, another excellent translation. So let me just put those out for you. That little part was a little bonus. I hope it helps you, kind of frees you up from some of the superstitious ideas around translations. Uh, Let's go back to that verse. And let's just say it one more time. Do it with me. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. So let me just say without eloquence, let's do that. Let's be that. So that God's word brings us closer to the heart of God and transforms all of us together, right? All right. We're going to turn to the Lord's table during our closing song. I'm going to ask those who are serving to come forward and get in position. I'm going to ask our worship team to come into position. And I'm going to read a passage from Scripture to remind us about the Lord's table and why we're celebrating it from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul writes... For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and celebrate the Lord's table together. Father, we thank you for this incredible gift that pulls us back to the heart of this book and this story of redemption, pulls us back to the centrality of the cross, Somehow you knew that we would need that. (laughs) We would need to come back because we drift. Our hearts drift, our thoughts drift, our desires drift. Thank you that we come back once again to a reminder of your body that was broken, your blood that was shed for the remission of our sins. And we say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.